Hello, everybody. Oh, that was so ragged. Hello, everybody. Happy to be back preaching today. In case you didn't know, I was on sabbatical last year from July to December. I had to go and do some research and undergo some training. But also from June to October last year, I lost 10 kilos. I submitted photographic proof to the pastors. Unfortunately, after that, I went on a three-month-long weight loss celebration. <laughs> for example, I met Go Kick Tick. We went for a very good clay pot laksa together. And then there was Christmas, and now Chinese New Year. I may have to lose another 10 kilos. <laughs> In any case, I'm happy to be back uh, preaching. I actually had a nice joke, which I posted on Facebook. But one of our pastors commented, please don't use this joke for Sunday sermon. And then someone else from church said, please use it. We'll post on our church's Instagram. But I won't use it last, since your pastor said not to. Instead, I will tell you about how stunned I was to hear Pastor Lee Yam Kai preach before Chinese New Year. I was stunned because he was supposed to stick to Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 16. But he went on to preach on verses 17 to 24, which is the text I'm supposed to use today. So I went to complain to Pastor Anthony. Folks already preached on my text. There's only one main point to be made. He made it. How can I carry on with the same text? <laughs> Do you hear that? Pastor Anthony, Pastor guy said, I can go home now. But Pastor Anthony said to me, you can do it. But he also gave me permission to preach on another topic if I wanted. And since uh, Pastor Anthony has faith in me, I stuck to the assigned passage. I went back to my office over Chinese New Year and brought home my commentaries there. I took back the big guys. As you can see in this photo, the new international commentary series. As you see from this photo, yes. Uh, F.F. Bruce and then the one behind by Victor Hamilton. Nearly 500 pages. Uh, Victor Hamilton Professor at Asbury Seminary, where Pastor Melvin studied and where I spent a semester. <coughs> then I thought, might as well bring home uh, the little guy, the Tyndale Old Testament commentary, next photo, by Derek Kittner, the former warden of Tyndale House, where I spent a year. And look what I found when I opened the Tyndale commentary to today's passage, next photo. A forgotten $20 bird series note from the 1980s. A vivid reminder from God that there is treasure in His Word. <laughs> so let's look at His Word. Now, uh, you remember the background to today's passage? Abraham and his nephew Lot went their separate ways, with Lot settling down in Sodom. But then a large raiding party from the east, led by four local chieftains or kings, overran Sodom. They carried away booty, they carried away prisoners to be sold as slaves. Lot and his possessions were also taken away. And when he heard the news, Abraham armed his retainers, 318 of them. He chased after the raiders. And although outnumbered, he caught up with the raiders. He surprised them in a night attack. He utterly routed them. He pursued them all the way to Damascus and he brought home Lot and all the spoils of war. 
And so we come to these verses, 17 to 24, Genesis 14. Let me read them out to you. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, he blessed Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham by, the, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands, into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. And this is the word of God. Come, let us pray. Father, we thank you for this story. As we look to your word now, we ask you, please open our hearts, speak to us, Lord, and give us understanding. Amen. So, a grateful king of Sodom, a guy called Berah, he comes out to welcome the victorious Abraham and to receive back his people. But they are joined by Melchizedek, king of Salem. The name Melchizedek is made up of two Hebrew words, Melech, meaning king, and Zadok, meaning righteous or just. So Melchizedek could mean, my king is righteous, or king of righteousness. And this king is from Salem, which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, after all, meant city of Salem in the ancient languages. Melchizedek is also priest of God Most High. Now, Melchizedek is a Canaanite, and we would expect him to bless in the name of one of his own Canaanite gods. But whatever this title, God Most High, meant to Melchizedek's predecessors, and successes, here in today's passage, it clearly refers to Abraham's God, our God. And Melchizedek offers Abraham and his soldiers, his retainers, bread and wine. You might say very much like Holy Communion. And Melchizedek blesses, blesses Abraham with a blessing that focused on God, because Melchizedek knows that God is the real source of the victory. In turn, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Abraham gave a tithe. In contrast, the king of Sodom wants to give Abraham the recovered property. Just return my people, he says. But Abraham declines because he does not want to enrich himself from this military action. The thing to note here is that Abraham gives a tithe to the priest king Melchizedek, priest of God Most High. Now, what is a priest? A priest, technically, is a mediator, a middle person, someone who connects you to God and the divine. So in Israelite temple worship, for example, the priests were the ones who performed the sacrifices 
on behalf of everybody. Yes, you brought your offering to the tabernacle or to the temple, but it was processed by the priest. The priest slaughtered the animals. The priest poured the blood. And only the priest could enter the tabernacle or the temple. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple. Now Abraham's own great-grandson would be Levi or Levi, through whom the Israelite priests, the Levites, trace their lineage. Israelite high priests trace their line to Aaron, Moses' brother. But here in Melchizedek is a priest from Jerusalem who is not a Levite, who is not in Aaron's line. And in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer there contrasts Melchizedek with Jesus to say that there is now a new priestly order, not from Levi's or Aaron's line, but from Melchizedek's line. See here in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. For this Melchizedek, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace, because Salem, shalom, means peace. He is without father or mother of genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Now here it just means that the Old Testament doesn't give Melchizedek's genealogy or his father or mother's name, doesn't give any details of his life. Not the beginning of days, nor the end of life. And the thing to note about the Levitical priesthood is that it was meant to be temporary because the Levite priests could not bring perfection or salvation. Some of the priests, the Levites, were evidently not qualified because God struck dead two of the sons of Aaron for improper and unauthorized worship. God also condemned the sons of Eli who treated sacrificial offerings with contempt and they turned the tabernacle into a brothel. So the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Where is this change in the priesthood? It is in Jesus, who made a once and for all offering for sin, unlike normal priests who have to make daily sacrifices for their own sin and the sins of others. Hebrews chapter 10, from verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected 
for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. So the law has also changed. A new priest changing the law. The law is now on our hearts, written in us. And this is possible through the Holy Spirit in us. With Jesus as our high priest, we are connected to God. We have no need for any earthly priest. Hebrews 10 again from verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, through his sacrifice. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Why this warning of judgment? Because in Revelation, Chapter 1, verse 6, we are told that Jesus has now made us all a kingdom and we are priests to God. Again, in Revelation chapter 5, from verse 9, the creatures and elders in heaven, they are singing a new song. And the new song goes like this, By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. We are a kingdom now of priests, all of us. That is what the Reformation affirmed. We Protestants believe that we are a priesthood of believers. All of us are priests in the sense that we don't need any other mediator or middleman to connect us to God. Because of Jesus, we all can approach God on our own. And we should approach God with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, as it says in Hebrews chapter 10. What does this mean for us? Firstly, if you can approach God on your own, pray more. People like to ask pastors to pray, but the prayer of pastors are not necessarily more powerful than yours. Yes, pastors' prayers may flow better. We are able to articulate our prayer better, especially in front of others. But that is because we have more experience praying. Pastors pray more. John Wesley spent two hours at least every morning in prayer before he started the day. He said that if he spent less than two hours in prayer, the devil would have won that day. And the kneeler, Wesley knelt on to pray. The Bible he used is still on display in his house in London. Pastors pray more. And there's so much to pray for. Right? If nothing else, we can pray for our cell group members, our family. Now, I have a dear colleague uh, who I always share a room with when we go on retreats. And wherever we are, this friend of mine will end each day praying with each member of his family. He will call up his wife, 
and pray with her. Then the phone will be passed to his son, his daughter. He'll pray each of them individually. He does this every day, even if he's in another country. How much time do you spend in prayer each day? If you need help, if you want to practice, come to the prayer throne. Tuesdays, 1 p.m., Thursdays, 8 p.m. But we need to pray more. Secondly, if we are priests, we should be righteous. Be righteous. You know, as a pastor, I particularly dislike it when someone tries to get me to bend the rules. For example, during this pandemic, we are restricted to five unique visitors a day. Someone invited me over. Then I pointed out, hey, don't you already have five visitors that day? And the response was, who will know? And I replied, I will know. All of us as priests should strive to be upright at all times, especially when no one is watching. We must try to be blameless. Now, people like to scrutinize how pastors act and what we do. I remember when I was a chaplain of a Methodist school and I attended the Founders' Day dinner. It's not ACS, I should say. But uh, some of us chaplains were at a table hosted by leaders of the Methodist church attached to the school. And one of these leaders opened a bottle of wine, but all the chaplains didn't drink. In spite of that, because the parents didn't know what was going on, some parents were unhappy. They went to the Christian ministry staff to complain, who are these pastors who are drinking alcohol? And the Christian ministry staff came hurrying over. And we said, we are not drinking. It's these lay leaders here who are drinking. And then suddenly, that was okay. No problem. But why this double standard? If we are all priests, then the same standard should apply. You should scrutinize your own behavior, your own lives. Now last year, uh, I intervened in a quarrel between my neighbors. One of them was yelling, but he was not wearing a mask. So I told him, please, go wear a mask. And he replied, you don't have to correct me about wearing a mask. And he continued arguing. So I took a picture of him and asked him again, please, go put on a mask. He ignored me. Later, he came to my apartment. And he asked if I was a pastor. I said, yes. He said, you are an effing pastor. He used the F4 letter word. I'm going to burn your house down, he said. All this in front of my wife. So again, I took on my camera, started to video record him. My neighbors, that's not, I went over to help them. This time they came over to witness. In front of everybody, this man tried to justify himself, saying, anybody would have been angry also, as angry as him. Right? So in his anger, you can do what you like. He said he would complain to Gordon and Stanley, that I was a nasty pastor and a coward. And by Gordon and Stanley, he was referring to our bishop, uh, Dr. Gordon Wong, and our track president, Reverend Stanley Chua. He knew who they were. The next day, he went to Trinity Theological College, where I work, to say that he wanted to complain against me. And he threatened the principal's PA that if I made a police report about him, he would hire a good lawyer to make trouble for TTC. You bet I made a police report. <laughs> and they called him up to the police station to warn him. He apologized, he admitted it was all his fault, he promised not to do it again. Police told me, if you ever see him on your floor, call 999. I like to think he was not a Christian. 
His wife is a Christian. Wife is a Methodist local preacher, church worker in the Methodist church where I was district superintendent. I like to think he was not a Christian. Because if he was, then really, how should a priest behave? What kind of a priest or Christian acts like that? Around the same time, I lost a dear friend and university mate, Dr. Javier Garcia. He died in an accident. And I say it's always, it was always a joy to talk to Javier because he radiated God's love and grace. I never heard him swear or even say anything nasty about anyone. I never saw him show anger. And he was a rugged man, tough guy. But he was gentle in spirit and in speech. When he died, his colleague and friend wrote of Javier, his smile could turn your day around. He told stories, listened, laughed. He agonized about serious issues. He cared deeply for his students and their work. As a Christian and brother in faith, Javier offered grace, prayer, and love to those around him. Javier was a true Christian. He wasn't a pastor, but he's a great example of how a priest should behave. What about you? What example are you setting as a priest? Do people say that you offer grace, prayer, and love to those around you? Or they go and make a police report about you? As a priest, how are you bringing glory to God? Remember, as we are priests, we should pray more and we should be righteous. Come, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who cleansed us from our sins, who gave us direct link to you, who gave us eternal life that we may spend with you forever. Father, we thank you that you've made us and all priests. So we ask you, Lord, hear all our prayers. Even if our words falter, our lips stammer, hear the prayers of our hearts. Teach us to pray more. And teach us, Lord, always to be righteous, to be truly your priests that bring glory to you, that all around may know you are God most high. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.